everybody. So it is April 19th. James, we are back with a very, 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 very special guest today. Yes. Um, we have Miss Miller who is running for, give me House District 62. 62, because I want to say 92. I remember meeting a lot of candidates <laughs> from 92. So that, that two is stuck in my head. But you are running for District 62. That's correct. That's correct. I am running for state rep for House District 62. So currently, a good friend of mine, I think, represents that area. That's um, right. re Representative Bodie. That's right. He's running for Labor Secretary. So you are looking to replace Representative Bodie. So That's for right. all those who don't know, she's looking to replace your current state representative, William Bodie. Um, but tell us a little about yourself. Like, how did you even get to this point? I know yeah. you're a practicing attorney right now, yeah, I right? I am. I am. So I am. A, I'm a lawyer, mm -hmm. and um, we have met Sean in connection with my work as a civil rights lawyer. So. Uh, my current practice basically specializes in police brutality cases. I'm also a criminal defense lawyer. I used to be a lawyer for the Department of Justice, and I was uh, many years ago an assistant district attorney in Fulton County, right here in Fulton County. Um, I worked in the unit that prosecuted crimes against children and women and also homicides. So um, in terms of how I got here, it's um, really interesting because as we all know these all these districts got redrawn after the census and so my district used to be 59 it's now 62 um, and it was an open seat uh, so there was no one running uh, no incumbents running as you stated representative Bodie is running for labor commissioner and then there was another rep who was in the old 59 who decided not to run and so it just seemed like an opportune time for me to get in and to work on the front lines with my fellow Democrats to fight against all this crazy stuff going on at the state house. So I, I love that's this question, like, why, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. you look at the political landscape, right? It is mm -hmm. so much different than it was 10 years ago. Um, and I don't, in my crystal ball, I don't foresee it getting any better. Right? Yeah. I think that we're going to probably become more polarized than anything in the next couple of years. Yeah. Uh, why now? Like, why? What makes you want to run for a state? With, with everything that's going on in the state house, yeah. what makes you want to run now? Well, um, I, I will say this. When people ask me, like, why now, it's it almost makes me sort of think, well, gosh, this is like a logical extension of what I've always done. Mm -hmm. I have always done advocacy work. Um, my space happens to be criminal justice. Uh, I was representing crime victims and then people accused of crimes and then victims of police brutality. So all of these issues that are really important to our communities, uh, community-centered public safety, police accountability, criminal justice reform, restorative justice, these are all issues that I've been passionate about and working on the front lines for, for years. Um, in terms of why now, I think my push towards getting into politics started with the Trump years. Like many of us, you know, we have lived under Barack Obama. We saw the pendulum swing dramatically back. Um, we got President Trump into office, and we were literally in a fight for our lives. Um, and I mean literally. So d democracy was at peril. Um, and so all of this activism started happening in the community, not just around uh, criminal justice issues, but everywhere, voting rights. And I felt like personally, look, you know, you have been working for the people for many years. You need to do more. Um, get on the front lines. Scale your advocacy was just sort of what I was thinking and what I was hearing from my friends. Some folks thought I should run for judge. Other folks thought I should run for something else. But the State House really felt like the place where my talents could be used the most. That's where the fight is. And so that's what my career has been. 
And that's why when these lines got redrawn, my folks started looking at, you know, what would be the best sort of use of my talents, and we settled on uh, House District 62. So then I want to I throw another question out there, right? Um, so as you know, we've just got over, I mean, for those of you in the social injustice world, we just got over a big fight trying to push um, who was Judge Jackson now to be presumptive nominee Justice Jackson. Right. Um, hopefully by the, you know, once um, Justice Breyer retires. What does that moment mean to you? This moment can really, it, it can't be understated the significance mm -hmm. of this moment. You know, I often have moments where I think about my grandmother. I thought about my grandmother when Barack Obama got the nomination in 2008 and he became the first African-American president of this country and just what that would have meant to her to see and all the things, all the progress that she did not live to see. And so this was another one of those moments where for me, as a black woman lawyer in America, mm -hmm. understanding what it means to, to be in that small percentage of, of black lawyers and even smaller percentage of black women lawyers in this country, all the obstacles that we face to really just getting to this space where we are actually practicing, where we're respected, where we're able to um, matriculate through the law and become accomplished and just all the obstacles that we face like every African-American faces in society um, and to watch her just be at the top of her game mm -hmm. literally like I don't think there is a more accomplished jurist on the Supreme Court never there will never be and I mean, to watch her I want to say never that, be but yeah yeah to watch her go through the confirmation process and to do it with such class and dignity and then to watch her get confirmed is just like you're witnessing history happen yes. so it's amazing yeah and I, the reason why I thought about <coughs> you because you are you are a, an attorney first yeah. right now yeah. um and I just think that I know her personally, just the moment itself, yes. um, I think it's bigger than no matter what Huge. political side you come from. Um, I think that I just actually read an article where they're actually getting ready to put up a statue of um, Justice Ginsburg and Justice, forgot her name, um, Sandra Day O'Connor mm -hmm. in, in the U.S. House. They mm -hmm. just passed the legislation and um, Joe Biden actually just signed it into law, I think last Thursday or Friday. So the first two statues are the first two women justices, but now to know that in a couple of years from now, black woman. we'll have a statue of a black woman That's that right. will be able to represent That's right. a female who sits on the highest court in the land. One of the things that has come up, I think, since her nomination process, and I'm curious to know your opinion on this, is our judicial system as a whole has come under scrutiny, um, I think, by nominating her to the bench, right? Um, we know that she was a prosecutor, federal prosecutor, or a federal um, public, public defender. Mm -hmm. And that record has come under the, the scope because of the fact that we are a country that's supposedly, quote unquote, built upon laws. And one of our laws clearly states that everyone has the right to be represented, no matter how heinous the crime is. Everyone has a right to representation. And, and it's funny how, no knock to anybody, it's funny how we can have an argument that the killers of Ahmaud Arbery needs representation, but the people who may or may not have been responsible for 9-11 don't deserve representation. That's right. I don't know how that kind of refits it, but from, a, from an attorney perspective, um, our justice system has been under the scope, and we talked about this yesterday actually on our podcast about the young, we were talking about earlier, the young man who was killed in um, uh, Michigan, mm -hmm. who was shot in the back of the head. We have to do something about police brutality. Yep. And we have to do something about holding police accountable when they're wrong, especially being that they have such a high bar right. to what they're supposed to do. 
Um, a lot of people don't even know this. You may know this, that the only person who's allowed in the grand jury hearing is a police officer when they when they commit the crime while on duty. Um, so, and I was talking about this yesterday, like, uh, I'm a police officer and you walk into a grand jury room and you have your uniform on. Automatically, the people who are on that grand jury are going to look at you in a certain kind of way and have a certain level of respect for you. And if we can allow officers to have a voice in a grand jury hearing, then why should an average American have a voice, or a Georgian, have a voice in the grand jury process? Um, what do you feel like needs to be reformed in a grand And like, when we talk about the judicial system, what needs to be reformed to make it more fair? Wow, that's a huge question um, because I think there are lots of things that need to be reformed in our judicial system to make it more fair. Look, I am a, a criminal defense lawyer, so I am, uh, like Justice uh, Katanji, I am, have been on the front lines representing the criminally accused and fighting for the Constitution. What criminal defense lawyers do is we fight for the process because the criminal justice system has historically, and I don't think anybody would debate this, has been historically used as a tool of oppression against minorities, against poor people, um, against black people. So the way that the system has operated, it has operated to the effect of creating this, this, this very distinct patterns of injustice where we see African Americans being targeted more by law enforcement, African Americans getting more prison time when the crime is equal, African Americans getting arrested more for marijuana than anybody else even though the usage rates are the same. So uh, the mass incarceration, all of these issues that are criminal justice issues that have uh, tied to race discrimination in this country, that's what criminal defense lawyers fight against every day. Because our job is to make sure that the Constitution works fairly for everybody. Because if it doesn't work fairly for the accused, we can't be promised it will work fairly for anyone. And so um, I am proud of that work. Yes, at times we are representing people who are accused of doing bad things. But if we want a system of laws, if we want a system that is just and fair to everybody, you have to have criminal defense lawyers who fight for the Constitution and stand in the breach for the accused, um, even when they may or may not be guilty. So that's number one. Number two, in terms of how we reform it, I think you hit on one of the things that was a big component of the protests of 2020. Um, with police accountability or the lack of police accountability, police officers enjoy a lot of differential treatment in our criminal justice system when they do wrong things. So you talked about the grand jury in Georgia. That's just one example of how we give police officers special treatment. Um, there is also this whole idea of qualified immunity. Mm -hmm. Qualified immunity is a legal principle, a judge-created principle that allows officers who violate the Constitution to be uh, to get away with it, basically, if you cannot establish that the officer specifically should have known that this exact thing he did is illegal. Right. right. And so that is like a needle that is almost impossible to thread. And that is why you see so many of these cases fail when families try to get justice in the civil space um, because of the doctrine of qualified immunity. It's something that the Biden administration tried to tackle with the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Of course, we, we never saw that uh, make it anywhere, but one of the components <coughs> of that act was to get rid of qualified immunity so that police officers can be judged like every other citizen. If they violate the Constitution, um, then they should be judged accordingly without any special mechanism. And I think once you start to see more
accountability measures that just even the playing field between citizens and police officers, you will see policing in this country change. But as long as officers are allowed to violate the Constitution and not be held accountable, they're going to keep doing what? Violating the Constitution because there is no mechanism to hold them accountable. So that is a big part of criminal justice reform. It's getting rid of qualified immunity. It is making the process of policing in our communities more transparent by the widespread use of body cameras. Um, you're familiar with the Jimmy Atchison case, a big case in here in Atlanta where a young man was killed by um, an Atlanta police officer the Tuesday before the Super Bowl in 2019. Uh, that officer wasn't wearing a body camera. And Sean, one of the challenges for us as community people, when police officers go out in our community and they do wrong, if we don't have that body camera to show us clearly what happens, it becomes the deceased person who can't speak for themselves, their story versus officers who are telling the narrative. Right. And so I think another way that we level this playing field with police accountability and fairness in our criminal justice system is to make sure that officers wear their body cameras. And if they don't, officers should be charged criminally with tampering with evidence. Or if they cut evidence. them off. Yeah. If yeah, they, they cut they them off, off. Yeah. that should be a criminal charge. We just need to start treating officers the way we treat citizens. And I think once we do that, we will see a change in the way we And I would even, you know, I would even go as far as to say it's not just officers. I think the last president challenged us to realize that people who are in power seem to um, walk away with a lot more things than, yes. the, than the average person Money can, and power. right? That's we right. look at um, Representative Gates. He's been on the investigation for how many, over a year now? Yeah. And I think federal investigation. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the reality is the average person, we've seen people from the January 20th riot or January, January 16th riots get charged before he has. Yeah. And what's the, what makes the difference? And those were, and again, those were not black people, uh, mostly not black people. Um, those are white people, but it's again, it's about money mm -hmm. and it's about power. And I think that's something that we have to, you know, I was reading an article the other day that said 83% of judges that are actually sitting on the bench now were the only experience they have was prosecution. Mm. And that's I think, a problem. And that's a problem. I think it's a huge benefit to be able to have somebody like Justice um, um, Katanji Jackson because she comes from the experience of being a defender. Like, I'm not, I'm one of those people who believe that anybody who's going to be a judge needs to at least have an experience of what it's like to represent somebody on the I other side. With you. Um, because of the fact that when you step into a courtroom, if the only thing you know is the, per the personality of a DA or a district attorney or state attorney, whatever they are. That's how you rule on the bench. Mm -hmm. So I've been in case, cases where we've seen the judge be like, well, I don't think that that's the process. Or a, a person, I remember a person who was charged with rape, and they literally, we went to the court hearing, and the judge literally said, like, I don't think that this person should be put on pre-trial. I don't think this person needs to be put on an ankle brace. This case is over a year old. There has been no recommendation. The state asked for it, and he was like, okay, I'm going to give it to you. Yeah. And they put this person on a program that no one had ever used before, mm -hmm. ever. And the person kept violating, 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 and it wasn't their fault. It was because the app was like calling them at 2 o'clock in the morning saying, check in when you sleep at 2 o'clock in the morning. And it was just this process. But again, the, the, the judge literally said on, on transcript, I don't think this person needs all this because it's a he say, she say case. Yeah. Um, and there's evidence that can go either way. But he did it just because of the fact that the DA wanted it. And I remember, um, I'm not going to mention the DA who was in Georgia DA, who I remember asking the question, who's the most powerful person in the courtroom? And we, by nature, would say the judge, right? Mm -hmm. People who don't know. No. And th this DA told me straight she said, no, the most powerful person in the courtroom is the person you're talking to right now. That's right. It's the district attorney's office, because I can confine 
what a judge can and cannot do based upon how I charge. That's right. Um, And and that's the thing we don't understand. So I'm with you when we talk about criminal justice reform because it's something that, and I hope that if you win, that it's something that you guys don't forget that it's extremely important. Oh, absolutely. Um, because we've seen so much of it happening even now. Like this whole this whole law about giving people the or violating people's Second Amendment right by making them carry a gun carrying permit is absolutely insane is to insane. take that away because now we give officers another reason to kill, yeah. right? Out of fear now, because the law clearly states that if they're afraid for their life, they have the right. And everybody's take, carrying a gun. And now. everybody's carrying a gun openly, and they can't even ask you where your permit is at because. It's not required anymore. So I know I've talked a lot. I know James has a few questions for you, but I really (laughs) hope that if you win, that criminal justice reform, and go out and check out our website because we actually have something called the Fair Justice Act that we're working with Democrats and Republicans on now to to do some reformation on on some of those issues because Definitely. definitely when it comes to the grand jury, and definitely when it comes to the way we sentence, we have to get back to a system that's innocent until proven guilty that's versus right. guilty until proven innocent. That's absolutely right. I agree with you 100%. And I think a huge component of criminal justice reform are all of those things. But also, we just have too many people coming into our criminal justice system. We are over-criminalizing our population. We have got to have more robust diversion programs. Yeah. There's so many people that we can keep out of the criminal justice system. I cannot tell you what percentage of my job every day is trying to convince a prosecutor that some person who's never been in trouble before had a one-time situation if they are given the opportunity to rehabilitate prove themselves come back into society not only are we going to be safer because they're going to they're not going to be a convicted felon they're going to be able to get a job they're going to be able to secure housing it just makes more sense. It's we can spend our our precious taxpayer dollars doing something else. Our criminal justice system is too bloated. We spend too much money on this arrest, 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 prosecute, prosecute, prosecute philosophy. And at the end of the day, poor people and black people suffer as a result of that. We have got to keep people out of the system when we can. And then we got to rehabilitate the ones that come in so that when they come out, they come out to a job. Yeah, yeah. They come out to housing. But they then I would the even right add to, to that too that we have to uh, go back to the principle of being innocent and proven guilty. Yes. If a person is charged with a crime today, they should not be on the front of the newspaper tomorrow, right? Oh, yeah. um, definitely when there's a, like, I, again, I use Nathan Dillon as a perfect example. We know he went into that church in South Carolina and killed those people. Um, that's different. Mm-hmm. But if there's a reasonable doubt, if a person still has a chance where they have a defense that they can put up, mm-hmm. their life is lost <laughs> by that one little article saying this person got arrested yes, yeah. yesterday. Um, and that's something that, and, I, and 40% of those people end up beating the charges. 40, I think 42% in Georgia. That's something you can't give that person back that day that's or that true. two days and when they lost their job or their family members have right. disconnected from them. Um, so we have to get back to, I mean, it's funny how we have a system that says, okay, we want to keep the courtroom private. We don't want people to be able to see what's going on in the courtroom, but a person's life, we don't care. Make that public and put their information online, everything. Yeah. Um, and, and again, I, I do, I mean, I'm cautious enough to say that there's some people who need that kind of monitoring but that's not everybody who goes to the system yeah. so um i encourage you to criminal justice reform and i yes. think it's big and that there's actually a bill i think it's in the house right now in the u.s house hr 6667 um that kind of deals with some of that from a lighter standpoint but i met with david scott's team and okay. they are really um they're behind it so i mean not? um yeah absolutely sorry james i know I'm you had a few work. questions <laughs> but yeah my my questions are pretty Softballs. Okay. So, uh, so one of the things I wanted to know is, what is your pet project? Mm-hmm. What would that be? 
Well, um, pet project. Um, I don't know if I would I would call it a pet project, but I will tell you that one of my priorities would be criminal justice reform, which is what you heard me talk about. Mm -hmm. It is something I care tremendously about. Um, I also care about education funding uh, because in my experience as a person on the front lines of criminal justice and our criminal justice system, that it's really sort of the hub of all of society's ills, right? Um, people who are poor commit crimes. People who don't have an education, who can't get a job, end up turning to a life of crime because they they don't have anything else to do. Um, people who are disenfranchised, who can't participate in their in their um, in their government, who can't be integrated into society because they have made a one mistake, um, end up committing a cycle of crime. So I view education. Uh, the right to vote, criminal justice reform, and of course healthcare as, as really sort of fundamental human issues that we have to address uh, one way or another in society if we want to see anything change. So I am for full and robust funding of our public schools. Um, and I think the funding has to consider not just what's happening inside the classroom, mm -hmm. but what's happening outside the classroom, right? Because a lot of our kids don't come to class prepared to learn in the same way. So what we know about, about how kids learn is, look, we've got to have parents engaged. We've got to make sure that kids are eating before they come to school. We've got to make sure that any mental health or, or, or trauma that those children are dealing with is being appropriately addressed so that when they show up in the classroom, we can start focusing on sight words and how many sight words they, they should be, you know, sh they should have mastered at this time. So not only are we funding public school education in the traditional sense, we need to have funding for what I call wraparound stuff, stuff that happens outside of the public schools that really sort of get at how kids learn better. Um, in addition to that, I believe that health care is a priority. I think affordable health care for every Georgian uh, is a human right, and we have got to address the problem of health care, not only in Georgia, it's a problem across this country. The United States is really so far behind most other uh, industrialized free nations in how we treat our citizens as it comes to health care. So I'm for expanding Medicaid and Medicare, and I'm for solutions that make health care affordable for everyday people, including entrepreneurs. Um, I am a small business owner. I'm a mom, a single mom, a small business owner, and I have to tell you, it has been a challenge for me um, throughout the course of my business to make sure that I have health care, my daughter has health care, the folks who work for me have health care. So health care is really, it's about our health, but it's also about our economy. So, so those are the things I'm most passionate about. And, and one law that I'd like to see passed immediately, and I know I'm jumping around, there's so much to talk about, um, and I don't want to keep y'all here all day, but I am very passionate about um, how our elderly legacy homeowners are being treated in this process of development, particularly in the city of Atlanta. I have heard nightmare after nightmare about elderly citizens who have their homes, who are getting these predatory calls by investors that are pressuring them to sell their home. Um, I think there has to be some legislation that deals with that, that protects our elderly citizens. Look, I'm all for responsible development. I'm all for communities having the development that they want and that makes sense in their communities. Right. But I think we have to protect our legacy folks in the process. So that is an issue that I'm also passionate about, that I want to see legislation happening quickly. Um, yeah, one of the things you were talking about, health care, <coughs> and mental health is mm -hmm. a really big issue. Mm -hmm. And 
so in your over your career, mm-hmm. how let's see, how many do you think uh, uh, the cases that you've had to deal with mm-hmm. where mental health was a big issue? So many, so many. Um, I hesitate to say most, but I would say maybe most um, in some capacity in our criminal justice system. Look, I mean, people have been talking about this issue. The Fulton County Jail right now is really sort of doubling as a holding facility and a mental health institution. Many of the folks that we are seeing in our criminal justice system are really folks that need mental health treatment. So I think we have to sort of along this lines of developing accountability courts and funding for accountability courts, we gotta figure out if a person's issue is that they need mental health treatment or is this a person that is just, you know, going to keep committing crimes no matter what we do. If the person's primary motivation is a mental health issue or drug abuse, I mean, this this affects veterans too because they, they have mental health issues and oftentimes they have substance abuse issues. We need to get at those issues. We need to, to divert them again. I come back to this idea of diverting people from our criminal justice system that should not be in our criminal justice system. Divert them from, from sort of the normal track and put them in a place where they are getting the actual services that they need. We can fund this stuff. You know, we can make sure that a person has, you know, therapy, medication, we can stabilize them because once they get stabilized, often, oftentimes then we can get them in a housing situation. We can stop their primary motivation for committing crimes, whether it's theft or otherwise. Right. So huge, mental health is huge. And that, again, comes back to our health care system and making sure we have more expanded health care for folks and our criminal justice system, making sure that we are diverting the people that should not be in our criminal justice system in the first place. And another thing I, I want to, before we close out, two more questions I really had before we close out was um, the House just passed, the U.S. House just passed or legalized marijuana. Mm-hmm. Um, now we go to the Senate where we'll see what happens in the Senate. We know that Georgia actually has approved medical marijuana cards but have not really figured out how to, how to, how to do, do it. it right? Yeah. I, and I, I'll be honest, everybody knows who watches the show, I'm a medical marijuana holder, right? Mm-hmm. A medical card mm-hmm. holder. I'm probably one of the 18,000 I think there is. Mm-hmm. I've had eight surgeries on my stomach. The only thing that allows me to be able to not throw up or to be able to have an appetite is medical marijuana, right? Um, but how do we deal with that? I mean, there's so many, like, one of the things here is that, like, I'm borderline between whether we even drug test people for marijuana here or not because of the fact that some states is legal, some states are not. And I think even the federal government has begun to realize that we're criminalizing people for something that has really big medical benefits. Exactly. I was reading an article about a guy who his daughter has a medical marijuana card. She has seizures. She was going, she went from having 10 seizures a week to having one to two a week. And, but he has to cross to go to Florida and get it and come back to Georgia, which is illegal. But he has a marijuana card. What do we need to do as a, as a state to kind of move this forward? Because we realize there's benefits of it. Yes. From a financial standpoint yes. and also from a medical standpoint. From a medical standpoint, from a financial standpoint, and also from a criminal justice standpoint. Absolutely. Yeah. Look, I, I, I will tell you that I am in favor of the legalization of marijuana. Um, I certainly think the decriminalization of marijuana is something that is right to happen right now. I absolutely think that we need to stop messing around with medical marijuana. Let's start with what's easy. 
medical marijuana, we can regulate it, we can figure out who's supposed to grow it and who's not supposed to grow it, we can figure out who's entitled to a prescription and who's not. Let's start there. Um, and there's really no good excuse for why we haven't made more, more progress in, in this respect. I think we see a lot of southern states really struggling with this. Um, and perhaps it has something to do with sort of our our history of, of being the Bible Belt and then this notion that, you know, marijuana is a gateway drug. You know, we've heard President Biden sort of say this. He's been kind of slow to come around on the marijuana issue. Um, but I think we have to stop thinking about marijuana as a moral issue and start thinking about marijuana the way we think about alcohol or cigarettes. Um, it is a... Um, it is an item that we can regulate, that we can tax, and that people ought to be able to purchase and utilize. And if they do it irresponsibly, much in the same way if the person has alcohol and they use it irresponsibly, we can deal with that. But every day, I can't tell you how many everyday average hardworking Georgia citizens um, either would like to have easy access to medical marijuana for themselves or for someone in their family, or recreationally use marijuana and would like it to not be uh, not not to be criminalized. Right. Um, people shouldn't have their job in jeopardy because um, they choose to use marijuana as opposed to choosing alcohol. So I think it's something that we need to spend more time uh, studying, more time fleshing out. And I think people just have to be more courageous about it. Yeah, and I don't pretty much know if we need to study anymore because we see some states, like, I know, like, I've heard a read an article about, I think, in Washington, they're getting ready to do, they're doing studies right now on mushrooms and being able to use it for, uh, I forgot, Microdosing. PTSD. Microdosing. Oh. Microdosing for, for, yeah. Yeah, PTSD, right? For Is that PTSD, what it was? PTSD, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it's like, so we know and other, that. And other mental health issues. And, but we know that some of these drugs have effects, right? Mm -hmm. I suffer from gastroparesis. It helps tremendously. Um, my doctor writes me, luckily enough, my doctor writes me a description that I can go to Walgreens and get filled, but there's some people who don't have that benefit. Right. Um, and I think that it's increasingly important that we deal with that. And as you say, from a criminal justice standpoint, Absolutely. too, because of the fact that there's a lot of people, most drug offenses, 42% of drug offenses are marijuana cases, uh -huh. right? That's right. Um, and I think that a big part of the reason why we haven't dealt with it is because then you have to figure out what you're going to do with the 42% that you've locked up for marijuana. Yeah. Um, and nobody wants to talk about that, and yeah, nobody yeah, wants to have this. Yeah, no, yeah, nobody yeah. wants to have this mass release of people. Yeah. And at the same time, how do we restore their rights to where we're going to allow dispensaries to come in? They can have a piece of the market too, so that they don't have to be illegal drug dealers anymore. Now they can be actually business owners, business owners right? right. Um, and, and I think that I think that a lot of DAs have come around to it. Even a lot of solicitors I know have come around to the fact that you can't I mean it's no more dangerous than anything like alcohol. And I'm not. Out here advocating for the for the record, <laughs> I'm advocating for using it from the perspective of medical, of medical, um, mm -hmm. and from the perspective of people who actually have issues that it helps, right? Um, the other part of recreation, that's for the state to. Well, I think that we've seen this done in other places. California, so I yeah. think it, you know it's not just California; it's Illinois, it's DC, it's Colorado. you know, it's Colorado. So you know, there's Massachusetts. It's recreational now. Well, I didn't realize Massachusetts. Yeah, was. I drove right from New York to Massachusetts, right across <laughs> the border, and they're like on you know, every block. I think dealing with the medical part of it should be easy. Like we have already, we already have legislation on the books that allows for the use of medical marijuana in Georgia. 
I think our implementation of it has left a lot to be Even desired. Florida has figured it out, right? And Florida has figured it out. If Florida has figured it out, we all, Georgia should be. I am from Florida. <laughs> Georgia just doesn't want to do it. But yet, it's funny because we have an appetite to deal with the Second Amendment, right, and allowing people to carry guns, but we don't have an appetite to deal with people being able to live. Wow. But in the last question, who is Attorney Miller? Um, you said, you mentioned earlier today that you have, you're a single mother, you mm -hmm. have a daughter. Mm -hmm. Let us know who, who you are personally. Yeah, I am, I'm a girl from Cleveland, you know. Uh, How? I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a little black girl from Cleveland, Ohio, you know. I grew up in the Rust Belt, a big union town. Uh, my mother was a single mother herself, struggled, um, worked hard, did all the right things, but still struggled to raise us. Um, instituted in my brother and me this idea that education was the key to to stability, to independence, to safety, something that we didn't experience as young kids. And I believed her. And I, I worked hard, I studied, um, and decided um, even before I started studying that I was going to be the kind of person that my mother needed when she was struggling. So my work has been about helping people. I have always worked in a space where my talent was used to serve the most vulnerable in our society, whether it was as a prosecutor and I was representing kids who had been abused sexually, physically, uh, women who had been you know, sexually assaulted or in domestic violence situations, and now as a criminal defense lawyer representing the criminally accused. Most of my clients are young African-American men, boys, kids even charged with some of the worst crimes that you can imagine in the state of Georgia. Um, my civil rights practice centers around police brutality victims, and you know those are some of the hardest cases in the world uh, to stand up for. But that is, that is who I am as a person, that is what I have done as a lawyer, and that is who I will be as a legislator. I am a woman of the people, that's how I view myself, um, and I would just like to spend the rest of my time here on this earth um, making sure that I gave all I had to help as many people as I could. So that's who I am. That's how we need more people with that type of mindset. And if people want to know more information about you, oh, it's right here. Yeah. They can go to TanyaForGeorgia.com. And right. your email address is Tanya at Tanya, which is, can you take it to the top, Ali? Out of curiosity, because I think we'll get a better view of it above the city. Up, 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 up. There we go. Oh, 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 right there. Oh, Booyah. Um, technology. Good job, Ali. Um, Tanya at Georgia.com and they can call 678-827-1707. That's my cell phone. Thank you. That's your cell phone number? Yeah, it's right there. No, I mean, you mean, it is. straight that back. <laughs> no, it's not. I, I tell people all the time, deaf people who are running for office, like, once you get in office, that's going to be the worst thing. <laughs> <laughs> because so. everybody will have it. Um, everybody so. will have it. But we'll see. we thank you for your time. Thank you, we thank you so much for your transparency. And we look forward to seeing what you do in this race. And you can, your election, your first election is May. May 24. So please, 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 if you let me just say a little bit about District 62. So House, House District 62 is all in Fulton County. Um, it starts at Grant Park. That's the northernmost tip of it. It snakes down through... Um, People's Town, Chosewood, Lakewood Heights, Historic, uh, South Atlanta, a little bit of College Park in South Fulton, and a big chunk of East Point. So if you if you used to be in 62, go to the My Voter page, Secretary of State's website, to check your voter registration because a lot of these districts have changed. But if you live in any of those neighborhoods, double check as well. I'm um, asking for your vote, um, and the election is May 24th. 
And they can, and just so that we're clear, they can go to sos.ga.gov. That's correct. Check the status of where you're at. I'll probably go check mine. You I should know, check. I know we have been remapped. So I, I, in fact, one of our commissioners, young young lady in my county, um, literally just lost her seat because of the, the way they redistricted the, oh, the maps. Wow. And I think that's kind of, um, you know, yeah. it is kind of messed <laughs> on up. purpose, I'm sure. <laughs> on purpose, yes. definitely on purpose. We don't but have to draw the maps. We have a big election coming up, yep. and as we've always mentioned, you have to know who you're voting for. So we're honored to have um, Attorney Tanya Miller with us. <laughs> I wanted to call her Judge Tanya Miller. I don't know. No, not Judge. <laughs> um, and but we're just honored to have you here. Thank we thank you, you for your time. Thank Remember, you everybody, we have so many different events coming up on May. Correct me if I'm wrong. May twenty. 21st will be in Augusta for our one accord conference followed by June. Help me out, James. 25th. We'll be in Macon for our one accord conference. And then on July 16th, we're having our first inaugural Black Push Gala um, at the Omni, where we'll be honoring some of the most biggest civil rights leaders, I think, of our time. Yeah, very prominent civil rights leaders. So um, continue to join us, and here's a few um, different clips for you. But until tomorrow, we'll see you again. The one core conference for me was never for the people. Yeah. What God told me, He said, I need a Nehemiah shake in the spirit. Yeah. And I didn't get it. But what Nehemiah did is when God gave him a vision to rebuild the temple, Nehemiah went and he spoke to who? He spoke to the leaders. And the Bible says that when the leaders began to get on that part of the wall and began to work, the people who followed the leaders began to work. We need leaders who are ready to get back to work. What are you going to do? What are you going to do?